Our Father, we come to you this morning as needy people in a broken world. This week we have experienced our need and the world's brokenness in multiple ways. Our bodies do not work rightly. Some of us are sick with COVID. Others of us are sick with other maladies. And all of us bear the weakness of bodies that are destined to break down. We experience need and brokenness also in that our bodies die. Several in our our body this week have had loved ones die and enter eternity this week. We think of Dennis Schiller, the husband to Marianne and the father to Amber Kwok who died after a life of prolonged illness and difficulty and is now receiving his heavenly reward. We think of Rachel Pace's sister, Joe King, a faithful follower of you, who entered your presence at just the right time according to your schedule, but untimely for us. And we think of Carolyn Tubbs' nephew, Rob, who succumbed to COVID and leaves behind a wife, children, and grandchildren. Our Father, would you sustain and comfort and encourage and give hope to these families that they leave, that have been left behind? Would you minister your grace to them through your people and through your word? Father, while we do not want to grieve hopelessly. We do recognize that we grieve. Death is harsh and hard. It is our enemy. And while those who die and are in fellowship with Christ and in Christ by means of salvation, it is is the means of transportation into your presence and joy for them. It is harsh to us who are behind. And so would you comfort these dear families? We experience need and brokenness as well in that our spiritual hearts do not work perfectly or rightly. We have sinned this week ourselves, pursuing things perhaps even for only an instant that we knew would not satisfy us as well as you do. And then we have realized and reaped the results that the folly of sin produces. Would you forgive us and cleanse us and strengthen us to apply the power that the Spirit gives us to live with you and for you in the coming week? We've also been sinned against this week. Others have been uncaring and unkind and harsh. They have taken advantage of us. They have manipulated us and they have taken from us. And some of those who have sinned against us have been our brothers, family members, and intimate friends. Give us grace to exemplify Christ-likeness in that suffering. We have experienced the fallenness as well of creation. Things have not worked the way they were designed to work this week. And it has brought Sometimes things as simple as inconvenience, other times things as great as suffering to us. We have experienced need and brokenness in that our protections, like government, do not work rightly. 
We think particularly of our Christian brothers and sisters in Afghanistan who are experiencing the hatred of those who despise Christ. Give them endurance. It is unimaginable to us to suffer and be persecuted the way they are being persecuted. Oh, Father, help them. And help them to grieve the loss of their freedoms and even life as those who have hope in Christ and confidence in eternal reward. We pray for our missionaries in the Middle East who also may be in harm's way serving you in places where governmental authorities are fundamentally a part of their political agenda opposed to you and haters of you. We pray for our brother David Gibson who's unable to go to PNG this year and likely will be unable to go next year because of the shutdowns from the government. And though it is not the direct intention of these government of the government there in Papua New Guinea, these shutdowns are leading to the delay in completing the work of translation and leading to delay in the progress of the gospel. That which is designed to protect people is harming them spiritually. And we pray for our brother to give him confidence in you and even ability to complete the work from a distance so that those people might be equipped. Oh, Father, help us in all these weighty circumstances in which the world is not working rightly. Help us to weigh our troubles and eternity rightly. Help us to consider the brevity and lightness of our troubles in comparison to the length and weight of eternal glory. Keep our minds from being confused about what is lasting and what is finite and temporary. Help us to be bold with the gospel for all these circumstances are opportunities for your grace and for your power and the hope of a resurrected Christ to shine. Give us evangelistic and missionary effectiveness. So many of these problems are not localized in Granbury and not particular to us alone. They are world problems. So help us to see the opportunities to take the answer of these problems, Jesus Christ, to the nations. And we conclude in praying, Father, by saying, Come quickly, Lord Jesus. We need your kingdom. The world needs your sovereign rule. Come soon and give us faithfulness to you as we wait on that return. We pray in Christ's name for his exaltation, for his glory. Amen. Romans 15. Let me read starting in verse 22. For this reason, I have been often prevented from coming to you. But now with no further place for me in these regions, and since I've had for many years a longing to come to you whenever I go to Spain, for 
I hope to see you in passing and to be helped on my way there by you when I first enjoyed your company for a while. But now I'm going to Jerusalem serving the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. Yes, they were pleased to do so, and they are indebted to them. For if the Gentiles have shared in their spiritual things, they are indebted to minister to them also in material things. Therefore, when I've finished this and have put my seal on this fruit of theirs, I will go on by way of you to Spain. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. William Carey has come to be well-known in the world of missions for his work in really advancing the cause of missions in this current age. Yet when he first sought ordination from the Baptist Church in Olney in 1785, he was rejected by them as unworthy of being ordained for the ministry. He waited another year and submitted himself and another sermon for their examination. And a year later, in 1786, he was ordained by the church in Olney. And he then took a church pastorate in Moulton. But life was not easy for William Carey and his wife, Dorothy. They suffered through lean years financially so that Carrie had to work both as a pastor and a village teacher and a cobbler of shoes in order to support his family. In those first years of marriage between William and Dorothy, their firstborn son, Anne, contracted an illness and died. And yet in those years, Carrie began to have a passion for taking the gospel to the nations. And so it was that In his cobbler's shop, he set up a world map on a wood board behind his work area and began collecting data about all of the countries of the world and the progress of the gospel in those countries. And that data was incorporated into an 87-page book entitled, and you got to love the title, An Inquiry into the Obligations of Christians to Use Means for the Conversion of Heathens in which the religious state of the different nations of the world, the success of former undertakings and the practicability of further undertakings are considered. We know it as an inquiry. This little piece, as Kerry called it, would be, according to Timothy George, the historian, the manifesto of the modern missionary movement. His, his, um, his passion for the gospel going to the nations is seen throughout that document. But perhaps it's said most boldly in this statement. I question whether all are justified in staying here while so many are perishing without means of grace in other lands. That book was published in 1792 early in the year and... Later in that year, Kerry spoke to a group of pastors from 24 different churches. And in that sermon, which is lost, in fact, to my recollection, we have no no documentation of anything from Kerry except that book and inquiry. We have none of his sermons, none of his other writings except for letters. But in that sermon, he coined this phrase, expect great things 
attempt great things. At the conclusion of that conference with the other pastors, he had submitted to them a petition for evangelism and missions, and it appeared that they were going to dismiss without considering his petition. And so he rose and asked the moderator this question, Is there nothing again going to be done, sir? And because of that petition, they formed a committee and raised, I believe, 15 pounds to, to begin the, the, the venture of going with the gospel to the nations. In November of that same year, they received a request from John Thomas in India for someone to minister with him there, and the society chose, of course, William Carey. Seven months after that, in June of 1793, William Carey left England with his wife and children, her sister, and John Thomas and his family. It was no easy transition. None of them would ever see England again. All died in India. Carey died there after almost 45, 41 years of labor. He buried three of his children. He buried two of his wives. Dorothy first died after going, the commentators say, insane from her grief over the death of one of her children. While there, Carrie was working on a translation of the scriptures into the Hindi language. Twenty years he spent translating the Bible. And in one night, the place where every piece of documentation he had went up in flames. In hours, twenty years of work, gone. He had to start completely from scratch. Twenty years. We would say, wasted. What compels a William Carey to take the gospel to India amidst such hardship? Or what compels Jack and Susie to spend their retirement years going to Cambodia? Or David and Carey to Papua New Guinea? Or our friends that we've heard of of recently here from this pulpit going to churches in Lebanon and the Middle East to take the gospel? Friends, those are not safe places. They and their families may be in harm's way and they may likely suffer. Why? Why go? Because they have a vision for the gospel to go to the nations. A missionary vision that is akin to the Apostle Paul's vision in Romans chapter 15. In Romans 15, we finally find out why why Paul has been writing this letter. We... If we've just been reading the letter from the beginning until now, we might think that this is just a long theological discourse. But it's not. It's a missionary letter. This is all about missions. Everything in Romans ultimately is about missions, about taking the gospel to the world. And everything that Paul has said until now is simply to say, I want you to invest in me so that I can take this gospel that I'm telling you about to the nations so that the nations might be converted. In verses 17 to 21 of this chapter, he tells us of what he will preach, the gospel of Christ alone. It's only Christ that he will preach. 
In verses 30 to 33, he will speak about the power to go to the nations and what it is that will strengthen him in going to the nations. In these verses, verses 22 to 29, he will give us a vision for missions. What it is that he thinks about when he thinks about missions. What is missions? And we might summarize his teaching in this way. The goal of every believer and every church is to always plan for the next missionary venture. We ought always be thinking, according to the Apostle Paul, where can the gospel go next? Where are we not participating with the gospel? And where has the gospel not gone yet where people need the truth of the Scriptures? That's why David Gibson's in Papua New Guinea. Because they don't have a Bible. You and I have dozens of them. And they don't have one. That's why he's there. The goal of every believer in every church is to always plan for the next missionary venture. And here we will find that the Apostle Paul has established four principles for advancing the gospel message of Christ through missions. Four principles for advancing the gospel vision and gospel message. First, trust God with your missions plans. Trust God with your missions plans. In verses 15 to 21, the Apostle Paul not only spoke to us about the message that he would preach, but he also alludes to a number of things that he's already doing in ministry, things that, things that he is involved in. And it is those ministry responsibilities primarily to the Gentiles that have precluded him from going to Rome and elsewhere. So we find in verse 15 and 16 that he is a minister of Christ Jesus to the gospel, uh, to the Gentiles. He's ministering as a priest, the gospel of God. He's offering the Gentiles. Uh, he, he's, he's preaching so that the offering of the Gentiles becomes acceptable to God, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. So he's, he's working with the Gentiles and he's working in the Gentiles and other places. And those, those ministry responsibilities, verse 22, have prevented him from coming to Rome. In fact, notice verse 22, more than once, often, I've been prevented from coming to you. It seems that, again, verse 23, it was the priority of ministry in other places that have precluded him from coming because he says in verse 23, but now, so there's been a change, with no further place for me in these regions, now I'm going to come to you. So everything in those regions that I've been tasked to do, that has been completed. So the thing that has held me from coming to you has now been removed and I am coming to you. What's, what's fascinating about this as I have read and reread and reread this passage is that, is that Paul nowhere seems discontent. He's nowhere, he's nowhere complaining. He just seems to be very matter of fact about it. I had these plans to come to you and we, we know that he had, had plans to come to them. He says it here. He says it elsewhere in this book as well. But he's not agitated. He's not uncomfortable. He's not angry. He's just matter of fact, I haven't been able to come and, and now I'm coming. We know from chapter 1 that his intention had been to come to you 
come to them. Notice he says, chapter 1, verse 20, I always, make, always in my prayers making request, if perhaps now at last, by the will of God, I may succeed in coming to you. I've, I've been wanting to come. I've been praying. I've been planning. I've been trying to figure out how can I get there. And maybe now perhaps I can come to you. Why, why did you want to come? Verse 11, I long to see you that I may impart some spiritual gift to you that you may be established. I, I want to build into you and build you up and strengthen you so that you're equipped with the gospel of Christ. Verse 13, I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that I often have planned to come to you and have been prevented so far again. He's just, he's just recognizing God's done something to keep me from coming to you that I may obtain some fruit among you also, even as among the rest of the Gentiles. I want to see spiritual fruit. I think what he's talking about there is about conversion. The fruit of conversion in Rome, even as he experienced among some of the other Gentiles. This is, this is no temporary longing. This is no small thing. Notice verse 23 of Romans 15. I've had for many years a longing to come to you. It's a passionate longing. It's, it's a deep desire. You might have desires for what you're going to do this afternoon. Regina and I, on our way here today, talked about things that we might do this afternoon, what we might do for lunch, where we might go this afternoon, things that are on our agenda. I wouldn't say those are deep, passionate longings. Mowing my yard is not a deep burden of mine. This, this is something Paul just can't shake. It's in his bones. For years he's been wanting. And I, I, as I read this, I thought, it, this is deep and wide, right? It's deep in his soul. And it's wide and long in duration. This, this is just consuming the Apostle Paul. He'd had a long-standing desire to go to Rome and then to Spain. Paul is always thinking about the advance of the gospel and taking it to unreached places. He has a passion for the unbelieving and a sorrow for those who don't know Christ. We, we get a glimpse of that. We saw it in chapter 9. Verse 1, I'm telling the truth in Christ, I'm not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. I am willing to be damned to hell. If only... Israel would come to trust in her Messiah. Chapter 10. My heart's desire, my prayer to God for them, for Israel, is for their salvation. He's just always begging, always thinking, always planning. How can they come to know Christ his lament is not unlike what Kerry would say 18 centuries later. Is there nothing again to be done, sir? Are we going to sit and watch while people die and go to hell? Similarly, Spurgeon said, If sinners will be damned, 
at least let them leap to hell over our bodies. And if they will perish, let them perish with our arms about their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, at least let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions. And let not one go there unwarned and unprayed for. This is the Apostle Paul. This is the, this is the foundation of a vision for missions. This is what compelled Paul to always be making missionary plans. And yet even while he made those plans, he was always content when God redirected him. For years, he's had Spain on the brain. When can I go? When can I go? How can I get there? And he's always content with what the Lord has for him in the moment. Always planning. Always content. As we think about missions, we want to have that same perspective. Do we care that people in Papua New Guinea and Russia and Israel and Lebanon and Afghanistan are headed towards hell because no one has told them the truth. Where can we go? And with whom can we join to take this singular message of hope, the gospel of Christ, to impact the nations for Christ? We should be answering that question both personally and corporately. I need to answer that question and we as a body need to answer that question. We have just taken on some new missionaries in Chile. We now have missionaries on every continent except Antarctica. Where do we go next? How about two missionaries on every continent? How about three? Here's one. I've started praying about this one this week. How about one family from Grace Bible Church in Granbury on every continent? We've always been committed to missions. I've, I've loved that about this church. But we, and I'll take, I'll take the lead here, I have not been proactive enough and cultivating a vision for where we go next. I don't want to see that change. Where are we going next? I remember when a beloved family member died. We got back from the funeral and we were not confident, are not confident of that person's salvation. And you know how it is when your spouse isn't sleeping and you can just kind of tell. So I kind of whispered, you awake? She said, yeah. I said, what, what's going on? What, why are you struggling to sleep? Because I just can't think 
about where she is. The horror of hell. And the unrelenting nature of it. One second after they die, every hope of avoiding it is gone. Forever. Where are we going to go with the gospel for the nations? Trust God with your mission's plans. Make plans and trust Him. Secondly, look to help the international church financially. I might say it this way. Fund missionary ventures. Put your money behind godly, Christ-exalting missions. When Paul mentions Spain in verse 24... Here we're finding the purpose of this section and we're finding actually the purpose for this book. For I want to go to Spain. Oh, yeah, by the way, parentheses, verse 24, I hope to see you in passing, (laughs) but just know I'm not coming to stay with you. You have a, a solid church and you have godly leadership and you don't need me. But I need you. And notice what he says. I want to see you and be helped on my way there, that is, to Spain, by you. Now, in our translations, that word helped is, is a really broad word. But it's used in a very particular way in the New Testament. And it always has the idea of material help. So, for instance, Titus chapter 3. Verse 13, diligently help Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way, help them, same word, so that nothing is lacking for them. Whatever they need, give it to them so that they can go, so that they're not encumbered, so that they don't have to worry about where am I going to get the clothes, where am I going to get the finances, where am I going to get the hospitality care along the way, how am I going to sustain myself when I'm there, give them everything that they need. John will say the same thing, Third John. Verse 6. They have testified to your love for, excuse me, they have testified to your love before the church. You do well to send them on their way in a manner worthy of God. For they went out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support such men so that we may be fellow workers. Give them everything they need. Same idea so that they have no trouble getting there and they have no trouble staying there. And that's what Paul's asking for. Isn't it interesting? He's not not very quiet about asking for money, is he? It's right up front. I need help. And you guys are positioned to do it. And there's, there's a level of expectation there, isn't there? You share. You give. You help. It seems that Paul might also be asking for Rome to serve as kind of a base of his missionary venture. So until now, he's been in Antioch as his base into Asia. When that that served him well, Antioch is north north of Jerusalem at the upper end of Israel. And it was easy for him to just make a quick trip into Asia Minor, Ephesus, Colossae, etc. It was a fairly quick trip for those days. But 
Antioch is probably 1,500 miles or more from Rome and even further away from Spain. And it just was impractical for him to work out of Antioch to go to Spain. And so he's saying, I need help. Would you sustain me as I make my way to Spain? Two implications. One, again, Paul is unashamed to ask for help. Why? Because it's appropriate for the church to help. We'll see this in the next verses. Two, the church seems willing to help. Other churches did help. We see that in 3 John. We see it in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. That they gave with joy, with, with hilariousness, with, with giddiness. I get to help. When they couldn't go, they gave. And they gave willingly and they were willing to stay so that they could give so that others could go. Oh, brothers and sisters, let us look to how to help the international church. Let us look. How can we fund this thing? How can we raise additional resources so that we can carry the gospel to further places? Third vision of Paul. Care for churches already entrusted to you. Verse 25, I'm coming. We find that in verse 24. Uh, But just a minute, verse 25, but now I'm going to Jerusalem. So first I've got to go to Jerusalem. There there are some, some things that I've left undone that I still need to take care of. The Apostle Paul, we know from 1 Corinthians chapter 16, has been collecting funds from other churches for the Jerusalem church. And he is committed to getting those funds there. In order to get those funds there, he has to go. In the first century after Christ's death, electronic fund transfer was shipping. I mean, literally, shipping. And so that's what the Apostle Paul had to do, is if he's going to take the money, he's got to go. Now you're asking the question, well, why does Paul have to go? Why can't Paul... Just go to Rome. Why does he have to go all the way to Jerusalem? Why can't he send somebody else? Notice verse 25. But now I am going to Jerusalem serving the saints. And the word serving there is a verse, a word that we saw earlier in this chapter. I believe it was verse 15, where, verse 14, where he talks about it's, it's an act of worship. It's not just It's just not some activity to do. It's a spiritual form of service. He's building them up spiritually in doing this. It was Paul's missionary calling, if you will, his duty, his obligation. In fact, in Galatians chapter 2, He says, after an interval of 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along also. It was because of a revelation that I went up and I submitted to them the gospel, which I preach among the Gentiles, but I did so in private to those who were of reputation for fear of running. Uh, Wait a minute. That's a good verse, but that's not the one I wanted. (laughs) Read your notes, Terry. Verse 10. I had the right chapter. I had the wrong verse. Verse 10. So he's in Jerusalem and he is commissioned... By Jerusalem, verse 10, Galatians 2, they only asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was also eager to do. 
And so this collection is in fulfillment of the calling the Jerusalem church put on him. And he wants to see it through all the way to the end. This is at least the second time that the Apostle Paul has taken a trip to Jerusalem to take funds. We know from Acts 11 and 12 he's made a previous trip and now he's going again. Now we should notice that this is no small problem for Paul. Because Paul is in Corinth. That's in the middle. That's the circle. Southern Greece. Uh, Just to the east of Corinth, you'll see Athens. And he's got to go to Jerusalem by boat. About 800 miles by ship. It's not just that he's got to go to Jerusalem. He's got to go back past Corinth to get to Rome. 1,500 miles. And then from there, he wants to go to Spain about another 700 miles. He's got 3,000 miles of traveling. Now, some of you are going to say, that's no big deal. Pastor Keith in England, he's going to go further than that coming home, and he'll be here in like 10 hours on Friday, Lord willing. Not quite the same in that day, was it? It was a massive inconvenience. Paul's not regretful. He's not telling them, man, it's just this thing. I made this promise and if it wasn't for this promise, I'd be there. No, no, no. It's his joy. He's fulfilling ministry. And while it might be inconvenient from our perspective, it's a joy to him. In fact, this whole thing about caring for the church in Jerusalem is joy. Verse 26, for Macedonia and Achaia, have been pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. (laughs) They were pleased. In fact, it's not just verse 26. Notice verse 27. He emphasizes it. Yes, they were pleased to do so. They found joy. There's no, well, I guess if I gotta, I, I guess if Paul is just begging us enough, if he just won't go away, if he won't stop passing the plate, this is the 14th time he's passed the plate, I'll just put something in. Please stop, Paul. That's not their perspective. It's their joy to do it. It's their joy to care for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. Just a side note, I don't want to belabor this, but notice that it's not the poor in Jerusalem, it's the poor who are in the church in Jerusalem. It's the poor believers. Paul's not advocating social action here. Paul is not advocating, let's solve the world problems by giving them food and water. That's not what he's doing. He's saying, we have a responsibility to care for the flock of Christ. And that's the priority. So this isn't social action. This is caring for other believers within the church. Now notice who's doing that. He mentions two places, Macedonia and Achaia. We know that other churches also were part of this process. Thessalonica, which is also part of Macedonia and Philippi. Greece, Berea, Derby. In one place, he says, Asia has been collecting. So uh, he's thinking about a group of churches. Galatia. All of these churches have been contributing to the needs of the poor in Jerusalem. But Paul here singles out Macedonia and Achaia. Why does he single out those two churches? Or those two regions? Macedonia included the cities of Philippi and Thessalonica. 
And those two churches in those two places are probably the poorest of the poor among the New Testament churches. In fact, Paul will say in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God which has been given in the churches of Macedonia that in great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. So you combine joy and poverty and what do you get? Generous giving. It's not the way it works in our culture, is it? For I testify that they gave according to their ability and beyond their ability. They gave of their own accord, begging us with much urging for the favor of participation in the sort in the support of the saints. You can just hear the Apostle Paul saying, No, listen, Philippi, just just stop. Your need is greater than the, than the need in Jerusalem. Just stop. And they're saying, Paul, you can't keep us from giving. It's our joy to give. It's our delight to give. They begged to help. Achaia was different. Achaia was a region. You see it there. It's part of the Corinthian area. So right above the circle there in Corinth is the word Achaia. That's the region. There are about 12 cities in that region of Achaia. Corinth was one of those. Historians tell us that shortly after this time period, maybe 50 to 100 years later, Achaia fell into economic hardship. But it appears that at this time when Paul's writing, they're still doing pretty well. But the Corinthian church, which is the heart of Achaia, was a struggling church. It's Perhaps, can we say it this way, the most rebellious New Testament church? The church that struggled the most spiritually? The one that is most poverty-stricken spiritually? And I think the Apostle Paul points to Macedonia and Achaia for this reason. He's pointing to the poorest of the poor. The poor financially and the poor spiritually. Ah, but Achaia and Corinth repented, didn't they? And out of their repentance, they gave joyfully. And Paul is saying, God can use your poverty and your repentance to provide for the needs of the nations. Why should we give? Why should we care? The American motto is something like, Take care of yourself. Watch out for number one. That's not the motto of Paul. Paul's motto and the biblical motto is be sure to care for others. Others first. And don't think about self. We have been given what we have been given so that we are equipped to share. I have been struck for many years by what John Piper wrote in Desiring God probably 35 or 40 years ago now. He wrote this. There are three levels of how to live with things. You can steal to get, or you can work to get, or you can work in order to give. Too many professing Christians live on level two, 
Almost all the forces of our culture urge them to live on level two. But the Bible pushes us relentlessly to level three. God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. 2 Corinthians 9. Why does God bless us with abundance? So that we can have enough to live on and then use the rest for all manner of good works that alleviate spiritual and physical misery. Enough for us. Abundance for others. The issue is not how much a person makes. Big industry and big salaries are a fact of our times and they are not a necessary evil. The evil is in being deceived into thinking a six-digit salary must be accompanied by a six-digit lifestyle. God has made us to be conduits of His grace. The danger is in thinking the conduit should be lined with gold. It shouldn't. Copper will do. This idea is built into the passage. Notice verse 27. They were pleased to do so. Verse 26, he says, they have made a contribution. That word contribution is the word fellowship. Koinonia. You know that word. And we think about fellowship as as sharing together, communion, delight in relationship. But it's also used to talk about giving to others and sharing with others. And I, I think Paul means us to understand it in both ways. When we share materially, then we share spiritually as well. And the one leads to the other. Why do we do that? Verse 27, they are indebted to them. For the Gentiles have shared in their spiritual things. They are indebted, twice he says indebted, to minister to them also in material ways. The Jerusalem church was the church that sent out the first missionaries. Every believer in the world is a result of the mission's emphasis of the first church in Jerusalem. If you could see it, and we can't, every one of us has our salvation traced back to the missionary venture of the Jerusalem church. We've all gained from it spiritually. And Paul says to those churches who had a clear link to the Jerusalem church, hey, they have given to you spiritually. It just makes sense that you're indebted to give to them materially as well. Now, isn't that interesting? That the Apostle Paul has said in verses 26 and 27, they were pleased to give, they were pleased to give because they had to. How do you hold those things in tension? I mean... Is an obligation joyful? How could they give joyfully if Paul said you got to? We do that all the time, don't we? Terry, love your wife as Christ loved the church. Is that a duty? Yeah. Is it a joyful duty? The most amazing thing ever happened in my life. Is it a father's duty to to care for his children, to provide for his children? Yeah. Yeah. If he doesn't, he's worse than an infidel. Is that a pleasure? I used to think when my dad would buy stuff, I used to think, man, a bunch of leeches hanging on dad. He's got a salary and he's got to pay for everybody else. What a rip. Am I allowed to say that? Um, 
Yeah, he's, he, he, got, he got ripped off. It was stolen from him. It was taken from him. It's not fair. And then I became a dad. Oh, there's nothing better than being able to care for your kids. It's a duty, but it's a joyful duty. It's a pastor's duty to care for his people and pray for them. And it's a joyful duty. It's a believer's duty to share the gospel wherever he goes. And it's a joyful duty. We do, we do duty with joy all the time. And Paul says the same thing here. It's a duty, but it's a joy. We recognize we have people that we are related to, entrusted with, responsible to care for, and we are going to continue to care for them. Our mission policy says it this way. We commit to providing necessary resources, both spiritual and temporal, to encourage and equip missionaries for greater personal maturity and more effective public ministry. We are available as much as possible to be a resource and equipping center for our missionaries. We heartily affirm that they are going out for the sake of the name. So it is our joyful obligation and not the world's responsibility to care for them through helpful financial support, biblical discipleship, and ecclesiological oversight and accountability. It's our joy. We want to care for them. One last principle. Be ready to go and bless. So Paul's taking a detour, a small detour to Jerusalem. And then he says, therefore, when I've finished this, when I... When I get done in Jerusalem and I've put my seal of this fruit on theirs, I think he has a couple of things in mind. One, I want to make sure the money gets there. And two, it's been entrusted to me to take it. And so I want to put that seal of approval on it. This is the, this is the gift that's coming from the churches for you. And when I'm done with that, I will go on by way of you to Spain. There he shortens it, doesn't he? I'm coming to you, but oh, by the way, I'm going to Spain. That's the real objective. I want to go. He is ready to go. There's a willingness. There's a readiness. There's a strategic nature to his venture. I've got to go to Spain. And frankly, brothers and sisters, this is one of the marks of a missionary. This is how you know. How do you know someone's called to ministry in missions There are are a number of things, but this is one of them. And one of them is, I have to go. I'll just die if I can't go. It's not that I get to see the beautiful artwork over there. It's that I get to take the gospel to the people. And I must go. I have to go. I have a longing to go. It's the send me in, coach, mentality. It's the racehorse at the starting gate that's poised to run. Are you ready to go? How do you know if you're called to missions? This is one of the, this is one of the ways you know. I can't go. I don't know how I'm going to get there, but I have to go. And there's another means of knowing about a calling. Verse 29. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. And Paul's, Paul's made no secret. I'm headed to Spain. But he also recognizes he has an opportunity to help the people in Rome. 
And he just says, I'm, I'm coming to you so that I can bless you spiritually. He, he talked about that at length in chapter 1, verses 10 to 13. I want to pour into you. I want to see spiritual fruit in you. I want, I, want to, I, want to, I want to see you grow and develop and mature. And he's willing to sacrifice himself for the advance of the gospel and the care of people. Again, that's a mark of a believer. Is a believer who's called to missions. Are you poised to go? And do you want to build into people spiritually when you get there? Let's summarize it. Three ideas. Some are sent and some send, but all participate. The reality is all of us can't go. In fact, history will tell us that all of us don't go. Most of us will stay. Much of that is just the practicality. If everybody goes, who's going to fund it? Somebody's got to stay here to help fund it. And that's where most of us will be. But I want you to see what the Apostle Paul is driving home. Is that some have to go. And some have to stay. But everybody's involved. Everybody's involved in the mission venture. We're all partners in the global enterprise of Christ going to the nations. Some give and some receive, but all participate. If you're a missionary, you receive gifts. If you're not a missionary, you give gifts. That's the way God planned it. And that's the way it's going to be. And if we stay, we are committing to pray regularly. It's what Kerry called holding the ropes for the missionary, praying We commit to supporting financially as substantially as possible. We commit to providing necessary resources. We commit to providing regular and consistent communication. We commit in every way we can to say, we are with you. We want to help you. One last point. Some plans work. Some plans fail. But God always accomplishes his purposes. Now we talked about Paul's trip. But if you're paying attention, you recognize that I left out a couple important details. Paul was in Corinth. And he left Corinth in Acts 20 and went to Miletus. When he got to Miletus, he called the Ephesian elders to be with him. And he prayed. And he left Miletus And he went to Jerusalem. And when he got to Jerusalem, he was arrested. And this is the rest of the story. He was arrested. He appeared before the Sanhedrin. That's Acts 23. He endured a plot against his life. He appeared before Felix, Festus, and Agrippa. That's Acts 25 and 26. None of them were willing to heed his appeal. And so he made an appeal to Caesar in Acts 25, saying, if you're not going to listen to me as a Roman citizen, I have a right to go to Rome and stand before Caesar. After more than two years of waiting, he's finally released to go to Rome. Oh, there's this small problem in chapter 27 and 28. 
about a shipwreck and showing up in Rome, Acts Acts 28, verse 16, as a prisoner and under house arrest for two more years before he's finally released. Paul writes this in Romans 15. And he's thinking, okay, I got a big trip ahead of me. 2,200 miles, 20, yeah, 2,200 miles by boat. So it's going to take me a while. He had no idea that it was going to be five years before he would get to Spain. And we don't even know if he got to Spain. Clement writes in that time frame and says that he took his message far to the west. It seems like Spain could be far to the west, but we don't know. Scripture is silent, and the Spanish church has no record of Paul ever having been there. We don't know if he ever made it. But we do know that in all these things, with all the changes and plans, he's content. From his imprisonment in Rome, he wrote these words, Philippians chapter 2. Even if I'm being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and I share my joy with you all. You too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. He made his plans and he rejoiced even when God changed them. Oh, brothers and sisters, might we have a vision to take the gospel to the nations and then rest in how God will use us. Father, what a, what a rich passage this is. It's not just about telling the Romans about his trip plans and his schedule. It's about laying a framework for what missions ought to be about. And might we join with the Apostle Paul with a passion for the nations because people are dying without Christ. And the sorrow is massive. Might we feel the weight of that sorrow but not just to shed a tear tear today, but might it compel us to do something about it tomorrow. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.